This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. Welcome to another episode of Ask Isaac with a new submission process. Uh, If you check out IsaacMorehouse.com, I've added a page called Ask Isaac. You'll see a tab right at the top, and there is a submission form there to send in any questions um, for future Ask Isaac episodes. Uh, I may blog about them. Uh, It's just a great way to submit, basically to make my job easier, to submit ideas to me. I do a podcast every week, sometimes more. I blog every single day. I've got a great network of people and I want you to do my work for me. I want good ideas. I want good questions. I want good topics and interesting things to uh, to talk about. So I just launched that on the site a few days ago and we already have several really good um, submissions. So I am going to tackle those today. First, Jackie M. You went to college. When and how did you decide it wasn't the best path for most people? Um, thank you, Jackie, for the question. I, I don't think I would ever say that I decided that college is not the best path for most people. What I think I have come to the realization of over the years is that most people don't even think that there are multiple paths. Most people are completely unaware of the choice that they have and the ability to be in the driver's seat of their own life. Most people have never looked at what they actually want and don't want and assessed what it takes to get there. Most people do not treat college as an option or an opportunity or a cost that needs to be assessed and weighed. Even though they're spending tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars on it in four years of their life, they don't ask any questions of it. So really what I advocate is being in charge of your own life and being an intelligent consumer and understanding your path is yours and demanding value for the choices you make. Most people go to college to feel normal because everyone else goes to college and that's the easy route. It's the path of least resistance. And I think that's where the trouble and the danger comes. So I don't think it's a question of like, is college for most people? Cause like most people, what are we talking about? That's a big aggregate. Um, You asked when and how did I sort of come to this conclusion? I mean, when I was in college myself, um, I I was in college, I was working three days a week usually and packing in, you know, 18 credit hours on two days a week. And I was paying all this money to go to classes, most of which had really bad professors, TAs that were not very good. Uh, None of the students cared at all. They just wanted the piece of paper. Um, Not, I mean, almost none of the classes were good. There were some that were really good. But again, those things like philosophy, I was learning that stuff on my own anyway. And I could have just gone and talked with those professors on my own anyway. Um, So I just felt so frustrated that here I'm paying all this money for this and getting parking tickets and dealing with bureaucracy. I never felt like a customer ever. Professors don't treat you like a customer. Uh, Bureaucrats and administrators don't treat you like a customer Um, because in many ways you're not their customer. Most of their money comes from third parties, uh, governments, federal and state, loan, you know, companies that are giving loans, et cetera, et cetera. Um, So that's when I realized, okay, something is going on here. And when you really dig down and understand that the actual product being bought and sold is just the signal to employers that says I'm better than average, you start to realize, well, heck, there's a lot of ways you could build a signal that says I'm better than average. And they don't have to take four years and cost all this money. And all the things that many people like about college can be had for free or better in other ways. I mean, if you even like a lecture of a particular professor, you can sit in on the classroom for free. So this whole thing, just this pressure... I mean, where else do you have a good that that companies, big companies, loan companies, et cetera, and colleges themselves 
are selling to 17 year olds that costs like, you know, a hundred grand plus and nobody and like no one is ever like asking them to be really judicious and ask questions and make demands or getting themselves into debt. Like no questions asked. I mean, <laughs> it's a little scary when you think about it. So that's when I realized this just, this is screwed up. And this assumption that no matter who you are, no matter what you want to do, college will make you better at it is absolutely absurd. I mean, it's absurd on its face and it's absurd in practice. So not treating it as, well, no matter what you do, college will make you better. I mean, that's just crazy, right? That's just crazy. I mean, what do you want to do? So many young people say, I say, why are you going to go to college? Yes. Why are you going? Because I have to, to get a job because I don't want to be poor. Okay. What would you like to do? Not really sure. Well, how do you know college is going to help you get to not really sure? right? I mean, what you're going to do in 20 years probably doesn't even exist yet. What What is college going to do to prepare you for that? It's this fear-based mentality that you just have to go. That's what I want to combat. There are some people for whom college could be the perfect fit. I mean, if you know for sure you want to work in a career that legally requires a degree, it's unfortunate that they legally require it, um, then college is exactly what you have to do, whether you enjoy it or not. If you want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a bureaucrat or an accountant, um, you pretty much have to do it. And then at least, you know, you know why, you know what you want to get out of it. Um, but to just wander through without having any idea, it's a very expensive and inefficient way to try to discover what you like, uh, and don't like more importantly, get out in the world, experience some things. So, um, yeah, it was my own college experience that made me realize the absurdity of all of it. Um, and again, not for everyone, but for some individual people. The assumption is college is good for everyone. And if you think it might not be good for you, this huge burden of proof is put on you to prove that you're going to be Mark Zuckerberg or something amazing like that, which is just absurd, where there should be no default that college is good for everyone. There's no default assumption that a pickup truck is good for all young people. That'd be crazy. It's equally crazy to a default to the assumption that college is good for everyone. Um, okay, next question by Anonymous. Uh, actually, first name anonymous, last name anonymous. So anonymous, anonymous. Reading list for someone who's interested in both philosophy and business. That's a great question. Um, and I've said many times that I think one of the things I was surprised at when I spent many years working around a lot of successful people, who, people who had built successful businesses um, is how philosophical they are. All the best entrepreneurs I know are deeply philosophical people. And there's this interesting question of like, who are the philosophers today, right? We think about the old times, you know, the Greeks or whatever. Most of those people who are considered philosophers were like advisors to powerful people and wealthy people, trying to help them be better at what they did. When you think about that today, then it begs an interesting question. Who are the philosophers today? If using clear thinking, rational analysis, philosophical reasoning to help high achieving people do better, you would, you might be more likely to call Tony Robbins a philosopher than most um, professors, which maybe that's right. Maybe that's not, but it's an interesting question. Um, Cause most professors are completely, I, I majored in philosophy. I like philosophers and I like academic philosophy too, even uh, to a degree, but most of them are utterly and completely disconnected from the world of business and commerce. Many of them hate it and look down on it. They clearly don't understand it. Um, which is really, really sad because I think philosophy, really, this is why startups and entrepreneurship are so kind of hot and trendy right now because they're doing more than just starting a business. They're they're answering big philosophical questions about the way humans inter- interact with each other, with data, with artificial intelligence, whatever. Uh, entrepreneurship is, is like a field experiment for philosophy instead of just a thought experiment. Okay, sorry. So books. 
Here's a couple that I really enjoy that I think kind of bridge the two, uh, philosophy and kind of business. Um, Finite and Infinite Games by James Carse. Fascinating book. Um, very interesting, sort of about treating life as a game and seeing it as a series of games where it helps you. It's, it's kind of in the same way that using economics, uh, rational um, choice theory helps you remove the sort of moralistic aspect of this person's trying to be bad. This person's trying to manipulate me. This person's good. And just seeing everything neutrally as a game, like, okay, this is the game. This is what, you know, to win in this environment, you have to wear a nice suit. I can either choose to play that game or not, but I don't need to get bitter about it. It's a very, very good um, sort of philosophical look at something that has great implications for business and life success. Uh, How I Found Freedom in an Unfree World by Harry Brown is really a very practical guide for sort of self-emancipation from mindsets and habits that hold us back and keep us from being free. And it kind of builds on the classical liberal intellectual tradition, which is more about how societies need to be free and why, both morally and practically, and applies it to the individual. Why and how you need to be free and how it will benefit you. Um, Great, great book. Uh, The Act of Creation by Arthur Kessler. Kessler is a novelist, a really interesting, weird guy, um, was, I should say. Um, But this book is a deep, deep dive into the psychology of creation and sort of the subconscious processes that play a part in it. And it's maybe not so much philosophy, but there's a lot of sort of philosophy of mind in there, a lot of psychology. Uh, Zero to One by Peter Thiel, short book about starting companies, but it's it is laced with philosophy. He's got, he touches on Rawls and Nozick uh, in there. He touches on, he, there's a lot of the work of philosopher Rene Girard and literary um, critic, I guess, uh, or literature professor Rene Girard in there, um, not by name, but it comes out, this idea of uh, mimetic desire and um, the need to sort of break free from that. So zero to one, great, especially if you want to found a company. There's a lot of really good stuff in there. Uh, Letters from a Stoic, um, I like a lot. Um I think there's some some really good stuff in there um, that uh, just kind of helps you put on the right mindset and helps you in business. You face so many stressful things and so many so many hurdles and challenges. Um, and I think stoicism is a a phenomenal resource. I know Ryan Holiday is really big on this, and Tim Ferriss is really big on this, so it's kind of popular right now. But I think for good reason, stoicism um, has a, has a, a really good sort of reservoir of concepts and tools and, and sort of, you know, modes of thought that lets you embrace the worst case scenario um, and not let it get you down. And then sort of anything else is is, is gravy. It really helps you have a, a stable mind. And I think it's a great... Um, On Solitude by Montaigne uh, is also a great little collection of essays with some some stuff in there that I think again, just helps put things in perspective. When you're diving into business and startups, you you get so focused on what you're doing that every little thing, like it feels like it can destroy you or it can keep you up all night. Uh, you're stressed. And sometimes you need that perspective. I, I have a an article I wrote on uh, Medium. It's on my blog as well called uh, Advantages of Starting a Business While Having a Family. And one of the main things I write in there is that there's something so powerful about the perspective gained when I'm stressed and I feel like my life is about to end and I'm just worthless because my business isn't doing what I expect it to do. And, you know, it's like, you feel like your life is just, you know, forfeit. And then you look over and you got these two little girls like, daddy, will you come play, you know, Barbies with us? And you're just like, how could I ever be a failure? Like if I had nothing else in my life, but these two girls, it just puts things in perspective. And I think good philosophy, um, speculative uh, philosophy, the ability to just sort of 
zoom out and look at the bigger picture, meaning of life questions really help do that in business. Um, and I think, uh, I think Montaigne is, is excellent for that. Um, great question, Mark, man. Now you're getting me, I'm sorry, not Mark anonymous, anonymous, anonymous. You're getting me thinking about more. I might, I might write a blog post about that in the future. Some other books. Next question is from Mark. Do you think startup is becoming a buzzword? Would it be better to just create a business? Um, Okay. Yes and no. I mean, yes, startup, entrepreneur, uh, you know, all this stuff is really sexy right now. You've got shows like Shark Tank and whatnot. Um, so yeah, they're thrown around everywhere. And a lot of times they're applied to things that like aren't at all really, that doesn't even make sense. Everybody's like, oh, I'm working on a startup. Oh yeah. What are you doing? Oh, I'm drawing a picture. Well, that's not really a startup, but, um, or, you know, every business is every business a startup. But I actually think there is a meaningful distinction and I think it's, it's valuable. The word startup actually signifies when I say startup, what comes to your mind is, you know, Uber or some tech company in Silicon Valley or some young people who are busily trying to like raise money and build something fast and make a billion dollars. When I say business, it's like uh, Bank of America, uh, the sandwich shop on the corner, uh, especially if I said, say, small business, which most startups are very small when they when they begin. There's a meaningful distinction. I would point you to Paul Graham, who's a um, venture capitalist. He's uh, uh, involved with Y Combinator. Um, and his blog, paulgram.com slash growth is where you'll find the essay. And he's defining a startup and what, what makes a startup different from a business. It's startup equals growth. And I'm just going to read a few quick bits here to give you. And, and I really agree with this. And I think it's a meaningful description, um, distinction. I think it's useful. A startup is a company designed to grow fast. Being newly founded does not in itself make a company a startup, nor is it necessary for a startup to work on technology or to take venture funding or to have some kind of exit, which means, you know, selling off their assets. The only essential thing is growth. Everything else we associate with startups follows from growth. Um, And then he says, uh, let's start with a distinction that should be obvious, but is often overlooked. Not every newly founded company is a startup. Millions of companies are started every year in the U.S. Only a tiny fraction are startups. Most are service businesses, restaurants, barbershops, plumbers, and so on. These are not startups, except in a few unusual cases. A barbershop isn't designed to grow fast, whereas a search engine, for example, is. Uh, When I say startups are designed to grow fast, I mean it in two senses, partly designed in the sense of intended because most startups fail. They intended to grow fast and they just didn't. Um, But I also mean startups are different by nature in the same way that a redwood seedling has a different destiny from a bean sprout. I think that's a really powerful way to understand the difference. So um, to me, a startup is just that a company that is designed and intended to grow really fast and to grow exponentially um, and that's that's kind of how you judge it success or failure. I mean, startups are considered failures if they grow, but they just don't grow at like five or 10x. Um, whereas a small business is not considered a failure even if it breaks even for like its entire existence. Okay, final question. Uh, anonymous, but no last name, only anonymous first name. Challenges you face as an unschooling parent. Surprises. Oh man, challenges are more than I can count. I mean, we're, we've sort of transitioned from homeschooling with more structure into unschooling with very little structure, almost none. Um, but, uh, the biggest challenges, I mean, probably, probably the biggest challenges are one, just the constant struggle of like, not very many people do it. And so your kids can't just wander the neighborhood and 
you know, be kids and go build forts in the middle of the day or ride their bikes around or, you know, hang around other people, other kids playing or other adults working or whatever. Cause there's just not many places where that's acceptable. Um, so that can be a bit of a challenge. You can feel a little bit isolated, although we do have a pretty good community here. Um, and I think the biggest challenge, and this would probably also go for the biggest surprise is my own mental weakness. I mean, I know intellectually, I accept and understand all the arguments and research and, and things that I've read over the years about the Sudbury Valley School, free schooling, unschooling, you know, so many great books and resources. Uh, I've got a blog post about that if you just search for unschooling resources. Um, I know it all and I believe it. And I believe that it's correct for my kids and I've, and I've seen it. I've seen them do better when I'm hands off. But I'm surprised by and challenged by how much my old school authoritarian control freak mindset still emerges. And I'll all of a sudden feel panicky and be like, why, why aren't my kids doing this? They should be doing more of this. They, they ought to be, well, they need to know this. They need to learn this. And I just sort of like have these like bursts of like frustration. And then I like, you know, sort of imply to them that they should do this or that. And of course that never goes well. It's offensive uh, for obvious reasons. And, you know, and it, it ends up, creating tension and being worse for our relationship and nothing comes of it. And then I just feel guilty. I feel bad about it. But like, man, it's really hard. It's really hard to combat that. Like, well, kids ought to be doing this. When I was your age, I was doing, you know, mowing lawns and blah, blah, why aren't you doing? And that's a huge challenge. Uh, the other one is just the challenge of being willing to let your kids suffer, um, which I think is absolutely necessary for them to learn. So for example, if I think my kids should be whatever, you know, cleaning their room more, um, or, you know, trying to teach themselves coding in a more focused way instead of just kind of putting it off and saying, yeah, I'll learn that someday. And I'm getting that antsy, that itchiness, um, you know, there may be times or getting out and playing with friends more, uh, in, in the physical world, instead of doing Minecraft as much, there may be times where I want that because I know that they will suffer if they don't. I know that next time they get together with friends, uh, they won't know something that their friends know and they'll feel bad about it. And so an effort to prevent them from feeling bad, I try to like push them to do that thing. And it never works well because they don't want to do things just because I'm telling them to. Um, and that kind of defeats the whole purpose of unschooling. Um, but it's much more effective if they see the consequences themselves and have to feel the pain of not taking the time to learn how to do something or to study it and get better at it or to develop more friends and social skills or to keep their room clean or whatever it might be and letting them feel that pain and feel the consequences themselves is so hard as a parent because you don't want to see them feel sad that they don't have someone to play with or feel bad that their friends are better at something than they are but you have to let them you have to let them and they feel that and now they have an incentive to go and do the thing that matters to them. And they're doing it because it matters to them. Um, that's a huge challenge. And again, one that took me uh, by surprise. Thank you so much for the questions. Those were all excellent. And uh, again, isaacmorehouse.com slash ask. And you can submit as many good questions as you like. 